In my own personal devotions this week, I've been in Genesis, and I've been looking at the life of Jacob. And I will be honest with you, I'm, I'm using the Transformed Bible by Warren Wiersbe, and I'm reading Warren Wiersbe's notes. Last year, uh, last week, I tried to change a quote uh, by Tim Keller that I love, and I made it my own, but Kathy copied it down just like Tim says it, because she's probably heard Tim say it more than I have. And we got criticized for it. Like, you didn't give who credit is credit. Yes, okay. That quote about I am more vile than I want to believe, and yet at the same time more loved and wanted, I added extra to it just to make it my own, but that's all right. The original was with Tim, but he stole it from somebody, so I don't feel so bad. Because aren't all these truths? As Ironside said, what's new is not true, and what's true is not new. These are the truths in the word of God, and we're just repeating it. But anyway, I want to give Warren Wearsby credit just from the very beginning. But he was talking about Jacob, and he said, you'll notice in the life of Jacob that, that Jacob served God as the God of his distress. In other words, his fallback God. You know, Jacob, we don't have Jacob calling on the Lord at all until after he's deceived his brother and he's on the run, he's all alone, he's penniless, and he calls on God like, save me. And he has this rock for a hard place and, and God comes to him. But even then, he's not willing to surrender everything. He goes, okay, I'll tell you what, I know you want to make a covenant with me. And if you provide for me, if you enrich my life, then I'll come back to this place and I'll make you my God. He's the God of the fallback. So then we see Jacob, the next time he calls on the Lord is when he realizes that Laban, his father-in-law, is cheating him. Then he calls on God in his distress. He calls on God then when he leaves Laban and he finds out Laban is pursuing him with an army, he calls on God. Then he calls on God when he finds out in front of him there's going to be a confrontation with his brother who has an army of 400. Again, he calls on God. God, up until this time in, Dave, in Jacob's life, has been the God of his distress. But what happens? We're told that God meets with him and he wrestles with Jacob because God does not want to be just the God of Jacob's distress but he wants to be the God of Jacob's blessing. He wants to bless Jacob, but he can't because Jacob only calls on him in distress. And, he's, and as Jacob wrestles, we're told that the angel or the messenger of God touches Jacob in his, in his thigh and he, um, he makes a certain tendon wither and Jacob is crippled. And Jacob grabs onto this messenger and says, you're not gonna leave me until you bless me. And the angel said, all right, here's the blessing. The blessing is a change of your nature. Instead of being the heel catcher, the one who gets everything for himself, and only when he can't get it, he calls on God, you're going to have a change of nature and name. And that will be, now you will be Israel ruled by God. Because God could not bless Jacob as he wanted to when God was only the God of his distress and not the Lord of his life. I think too many Christians stop at no condemnation, say that's good enough. You've gotten rid of the problems in my life. Um, I wanted absolution from my guilt. I wanted a clean slate. I wanted new opportunities, and thank you, God, and now I'll do for myself. But the removal of condemnation by Jesus Christ is meant to be more than forgiveness of sins, more than the removal of judgment, more than a reprieval or a reprieve from wrath. God doesn't want to just keep us from something. He wants to bring us into something into something greater than we deserve, something greater than we could earn. Condemnation is what stood in the way of where God wanted to take us. Because God, from the beginning, has wanted to bring man into his glory. God has wanted to share who he is and what he is with mankind. 
He's wanted to bless because he's a blessing God. It's his nature to bless, to give. It's in his good character. And this is something that he's wanted to do because of who he is. But condemnation stood in the way. Our condemnation because we have sinned, because we've fallen short of the glory of God, because we've been in rebellion, because we've been hostile to God. And this stood in the way, so God dealt with the condemnation. And we talked last week about how God dealt with it externally by sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to take that condemnation that we deserved, that he dealt with it internally by opening our hearts that the Spirit might live in us, making us righteous so he could put his Holy Spirit in us. He's dealt with it eternally by making us his children by adopting us that we might say, Abba, Father. So he has the right to bless us through Christ Jesus because we are his children. You know, if I have a little extra money, I'm going to spend it on my kids or my grandkids. It's just the way it is. I love to bless my own children. And they're at a place that, that I can bless them because they're my children. I have the right as their mother to bless them. I have, I have that right. I, you know, I, 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 I'm going to be honest with you. I found out my son, and I know he lives seven hours away, but got a babysitter for his children. And I'm like, why didn't you call me? He's like, you live seven hours away. So I'm their grandmother. I, I wouldn't make it happen. For those guys, I would make it happen. Of course, I'm, I'm not a very good babysitter. I, their bedtime is seven. We stayed up till nine, singing songs and telling stories and, and reading stories. But God has made us his children so that he could bless us, so that he might have the right to bless us. So God has dealt with our condemnation externally, internally, eternally. The removal of condemnation allows us the freedom to live in all that Christ has accomplished. We are to live in the victory that he has already won. You see, God's already taken the land. Jesus has already bought the land back. He's the owner. He's already defeated the foe. And now we just step into that victory and we collect the spoils of war. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Those in Christ have no condemnation. In other words, there is nothing keeping those in Christ from the love and outpouring of God's love. And because God can constantly pour out his love, because he has already won the victory, we now, because the condemnation is removed, walk in that victory and as we walk in that victory, following Christ, people are hearing and reading the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, we have this idea that it's through our perfection, through not having any faults, by giving this great shiny image that everyone's going to go, oh, shiny image, I want Jesus. But you know what really leads people? It's when we're transparent, when we're real, when we're saying, this is hard, but God's going to get me through. And they can watch you going from the hard time, moving in victory, and finally getting the victory through Christ Jesus. Through that, we people learn who God is. Remember, it was as Israel went into the wilderness. And remember, they were faulted. They were complainers. Um, you know, is this all just some manna? They were constantly complaining. But God said, I'm going to take them out to the wilderness. I'm going to take them through hardship that they'll know who I am. And, and when we come to Rahab, who's a Gentile, she's heard the testimony of God. 
She says, I know you have a God that gives you victory. I know you have a God who takes you through the Red Sea, who feeds you daily. I know you have a God that is giving you one victory after another. And I want you to know that all the nations here are terrified because we have seen through the testimony of Israel that your God is real. So God wants to lead us in triumph. And let me tell you, it doesn't always start out looking like a triumph, but God wants to lead us to triumph, lead us to victory, the victory that he's already won, that the world might know that there's a God and that they might know who our God is and what our God is like. You know, Cheryl, I saw you in that trial, but your God sustained you. Yes, because I have a sustaining God. Cheryl, I saw you in that trial, but you were so secure. Yes, because my God loves me. I have a God that is love. Cheryl, I, I saw you walk through that trial, but you had so much grace. Yes, because my God is a God of grace and of mercy. Cheryl, I watched you walk through that trial and you really didn't get it right. No, I didn't. But I have a God who forgives. That's our testimony as we go through these things. Do I have to tell you you're not perfect? Do, do you really need to know that? Ask your husband. <laughs> so it is not just a removal from condemnation. Condemnation was the obstacle barring us from all of God's good blessings all of God's good intentions for us. Now, because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we can claim victory in every area of our life. No matter what happens to us, we can claim a victory. We can claim a victory in suffering, a victory in expectation, or a victory in hope, a victory in prayer, a victory in all things, just in case we didn't cover it, a victory in life and death. In Romans 8, 18 through 39, Paul enumerates what God has brought us into. All that is now ours because he has sent Jesus, because Jesus has removed the condemnation. This is now what we can lay hold of in faith as we are in Christ Jesus. Paul not only enumerates or, or shows us these areas of victory, but he explains how and why we have the victory in these things through Christ Jesus. Beginning with verse 18, we have victory in suffering. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Have you noticed that God does not remove suffering? I'll never forget years ago, I went to the doctor because I've never had a sore throat that was this bad. And the doctor was young, really, really gorgeous, and she had a diamond that was like bigger than my ear on her, on her hand. I remember she said to me like, seriously, why are you here? And I said, because my throat hurts. And, it, and she's like, well, I guess I'll have to swab it. I'm like, well, you are the doctor. Might be a good idea. And so she gives me a swab, and she goes, you know, I just think you're going to have to suffer. So I went home, and this was a Thursday, and I wrote a note to Brian saying, I will not be speaking until this sore throat is over, and I will be living on grape juice, because that was my dad's cure for everything, grape juice, and ice chips. And I won't talk, because I'm in so much pain. And so Friday went by, Saturday went by, Sunday went by, by Monday... I was, seriously was better. My dad called me and said, I told you it was grape juice. <laughs> Tuesday, the doctor's office calls me and says, Mrs. Broderson, you have a bad case of strep throat. I said, oh, no, I don't. And they're like, oh, yes, you do. You know, your swab came back and it's, you know, whatever. And I, they said, and here's the antibiotics. I said, I don't want your antibiotics. I didn't talk for four days. I drank only grape juice and had ice chips. 
and I am fine now. And they're like, let us check with the doctor. I said, oh yeah, check with her, because she said, I just have to suffer. So I just suffered and let her know I suffered and I'm fine now. I mean, I, I was not that nice. And so they got back on the phone and they, they said, she said, that's just fine. I said, thank you very much. I got a letter two days later saying, would you like to make a complaint about this doctor? And I said, no, just let her suffer. <laughs> but we have victory in suffering. God does not remove our suffering because our God suffered. We have a suffering God. You know, as believers, so many times we've got this misconception. We want God just to remove suffering. We think that we're supposed to live these stoic lives without any emotion, feeling, or pain. Isn't that true? Like we feel guilty because we get sad. We feel guilty because we get angry. We feel guilty because, um, you know, we're hungry. I always feel guilty over hunger. Don't ask me why. Probably because I feel it 24-7. But we feel this, this guilt sometimes over our feelings. Need I remind you that the Bible tells us that Jesus hungered? That Jesus was bent over with compassion, that Jesus was angry, that Jesus agonized in the garden. Jesus felt, he felt things more intensely than you will ever feel. We're made in his image and being made in his image is to feel. We're not to dis guard our emotions. We're not to live in them, but we're not to discard them either. Christianity is not an absence of emotion or suffering. Rather than remove suffering, because suffering is the result of sin, and suffering will be a part of life's experience as long as there are men and women who continue to choose sin over God. There will be suffering. So what God says is, I won't remove it, but I'll do this. I will bring purpose to suffering. So now we can have hope in suffering. We have victory in suffering. Why? And I've got five reasons why we can have victory in suffering. One, according to Romans 5, because suffering now teaches us. Suffering teaches us lessons and changes us and molds us. Nothing changes you like suffering. You know, I went through four months of pain before I went to the doctor about my tooth. Four months, and then they pulled it. That's why I waited. But you know, it was abscessing. It began to rot the bone out. But it was because the pain got so bad, I finally went for the cure. You know, there... Suffering will change us, and it will get us to do what we ordinarily would not do. It molds us. According to Hebrews chapter 12, God uses chastening or suffering to discipline or to train us in righteousness. Secondly, we have victory in suffering because God uses it so we can comfort others. That's how God brings purpose and victory to our suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that when we suffer, God comforts us. And then he says to us, that comfort that I gave you, you give to others. You know, it, it's, it's been such a righteous thing that when my children call, that I have a word for them. Honey, I've been through that. I went through that. Yes, I know it's hard, it hurts, but I'm telling you, God is going to bring you through it because he brought me through it. You know, and your daddy and I have the testimony of God bringing us through. Brian and I have gone through financial difficulties, but God's brought us through. So when our children call us and say, we don't have enough money, God will provide. And he always does. It's hard to stand back and watch your kids go through what you've gone through, isn't it? You want to run in and be savior. And, and sometimes God, you know, he won't let you. He says, I'm their savior. I know, but I wanted to be your sidekick. 
But he said, I want to be everything I am to you. I want to be to them. Let me be all to them that I am to you. And so what we have to do is comfort and say, God will come through. But you know, there's no comfort like the comfort of someone who says, I've been there. I was there. I've been through it. I know what you're going through. I remember years ago, um, two of my children got lice in school. Oh, I hate to admit this. They had lice. And, you know, I remember Brian was gone. He was always gone when there was something like this. They had lice. I, w- I was pregnant. I went to the store to get the stuff for their hair and backed into market carts, you know, and put a dent in my car and sent the market carts flying all over the uh, parking lot. I-, I just couldn't concentrate, you know, like, my kids have lice. So, like the rest of the church, but that's okay. I thought mine would be exempt. So I go home and I get this call and I don't take it because I recognize the number. It's like the perfect woman in our church. You know that perfect woman with perfect kids? She called me. This is what I expected. So your kids have lice. Ha, ha, ha. I knew you were less than. I expected that. Instead, I got this. Cheryl, heard your kids have lice. Been there. Throw away the pillows. That was it. She hung up. And I was like, she's not a foe. She's a friend. She's been there. It was such a comfort. I did throw away those pillows. But you know, there's nothing like the comfort of someone who's been through that. So God uses it to comfort. You know, we have a lot of points here, so I need to keep moving on. They reveal our true sonship in God. In Matthew chapter 13, it talks about the rocky soil. And the minute persecution comes up, that seed of the gospel, it withers away because it had no soil. In other words, it never was really planted. But when you persevere through suffering and you cling to God, it shows that you really, really, really are his child. Next, it drives you deeper into God's grace. It is suffering that proves the sufficiency of God's grace. Remember, Paul was suffering, and he went to the Lord three different times, and God answered him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient. So what Paul learned was a grace that could, that could move him, that could sustain him, that could even improve him. Make him strong in weakness. Make him more powerful. We learn the sufficiency and power of his grace through suffering. Finally, it is working for us for glory. Glory has weight. The word glory in the Bible, whether it's Hebrew or whether it's Greek, has the connotation of weight or substance. It is more substantial than anything you know. We tend to think of glory as like, oh, glory, glory, glory. You know, like it's air, it's clouds. Probably because we're told that, you know, God's glory filled the temple like a cloud. But remember what happened? The priest couldn't even go in there. Why? Because it was so substantial. Because it was so strong, it was so real, they couldn't enter in the temple. Why? (laughs) Sorry, we got to wait till God's glory leaves. (laughs) Then we'll go in the temple. It was so strong, it was so powerful, it was so substantial. You know, um, the water is heavier than air. It's it's heavier than our bodies. And so when we go in the ocean, what happens? We float. Why? Because water is heavier. And what happens with God's glory is it lifts us up. It it lightens us because it's substantial. So Paul is saying that this suffering has glory. It has weight. It has substance in heaven. There is glory for all that we've gone through. The compensation that God has for us in heaven is so substantial, so great, so wonderful that it is not even to be compared with anything that you could suffer on earth. And that's coming from our suffering Savior. Our suffering Savior says, you know what? It's nothing compared to the joy that was set before me. 
So God turns suffering to victory by using it for glory. Next, we have victory and expectation, verses 19 through 25. We're not alone in our groaning or in our expectation or our hope. It's not just that human beings have hope. Those who are Christians, we have hope that, that God's going to change everything, that Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on this earth. We're told that all of nature has the same hope. Trees and hills, animals, birds, springs, streams. All of nature is in cosmic harmony with our expectation of Jesus coming and removing the oppression, removing the curse from earth and completely from our lives. We're told in verse 21 of Romans chapter 8 that creation went under the curse for our sake. In Genesis chapter 1, God created everything and said, it's good. But when man became cursed, the good earth could not tolerate a bad man or a bad woman. So earth had to go under the curse with man, not voluntarily. Earth didn't go, hey, just put me without him. <laughs> I totally get it. Earth's like, no, not them. I have to relate to them. But God put all of the earth under the curse so that we could have the same expectation of Jesus. I mean, isn't it funny? You can look at a tree and go, your hope's my hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Talk to your plants. Prince Charles does. But we have the same expectation because a good earth would have destroyed a bad man. But so that God could redeem both man and nature together, God put nature under a curse. And this is what we call the second law of thermal dynamics, that everything around us is in a state of decay, just like we're in a state of decay. Had God not put the earth under the curse, there would be a hostility so great from the earth that it might refuse to feed, protect mankind. Instead, it would revolt against man with such a revulsion as to not even allow us to walk on its ground. So now nature is waiting for our redemption. Nature now shares our same hope. Nature can't wait for the glorious liberty of the children of God. Can you imagine? Like the trees are out there going, I can't wait till you, you know, become what you're supposed to be. Till you're nice and quit carving your initials in me. I just can't wait. We were saved according to this victorious hope, this victorious hope that we share with nature. And Paul says it's an unseen expectation because what you see, you no longer anticipate. As Paul says in verse 24, for why does one still hope for what he sees? You know, we want to see everything or we want to know how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. But then how would it be hope? How would it give us an opportunity to exercise faith? And the more we exercise faith on earth, the more commendation we have in heaven. So God allows us this time of faith because when we get to heaven, we shall see clearly and there will be no more need for, for hope or for faith because it will all be there. But right now we have the chance to exercise faith. And you know, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a, a coupon. It's only good. It has an expiration date. And so you want to use it now. Are you one of those people like me that you have all these coupons in your purse and you just leave them there until they expire? I don't know why I do that. I, I just, you know, oh, good. You don't, and I am always giving them. And the, uh, this expired like three years ago. You're kidding. I mean, I just like to carry them around until they expire. I mean, why use them? Faith has an expiration date. When you're in heaven, you'll see all the glory. You'll see Jesus. He'll be on the throne of God. All of, all of it will be realized. You will sense it. You'll see it. You'll feel it. You'll hear it. You'll know it with all of your being. You'll taste it. You'll breathe it in. It will be undeniable. It's just going to be your reality. 
Like you don't have like faith in, in this stage because you see it. You know it's there. It's, it's obvious. So why do we hope for that which we see? Now is our opportunity to use faith. But faith is sure. It's substantial. Our hope, we are sure it is coming. Like we anticipate Christmas 2016. Even though it hasn't happened yet, we know it. It is coming. It will happen. We anticipate summer, even though it's winter. And there's not much difference in Southern California. Some people even anticipate Christmas in July. Like Martha Stewart. We are sure it is coming, even though it's an unseen certainty. We're excited about the arrival of a baby, even though we can't see it. We know it's there by the pregnancy, by the, the overabundant stomach. Our expectation is victorious because it is shared, it is glorious or substantial, it is certain, it is unseen but a beautiful surprise, and we eagerly wait for it. It is wanted, it is needed. It is victorious because we've been waiting for it. And waiting always makes us appreciate the gift so much more. But we have victory in prayer, verses 26 through 27. We have victory in prayer because even when we don't know how or what to pray, the Spirit of God is making intercession for us. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You see, the Spirit prays exactly what we need. Exactly what we need. We don't pray for what we need. We, 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 we pray for other things. I think about Peter in Luke chapter 22. And he's about to go through the most horrific time of his life. He's, he's about to watch his savior, his friend, his mentor, the one that he's invested three years in, die brutally on a cross by the religious leaders. He's about to have everything in his life torn to pieces. He's gonna, and then he's gonna deny the Lord. So he's going to fail himself. He's going to fail the other disciples by forsaking them. He's going to fail Jesus. Everything's going to fall apart. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I want you to know that Satan has requested you by name, that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus knew exactly what Peter needed and that's how he interceded for him. In the same way, the Spirit of God knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how much strength we need. He knows exactly how much pressure we need. He knows exactly what we need for every situation. He knows what we need for tomorrow. Have you ever gotten a little extra money and gone, I've got extra money. I could buy a dress. And then a bill comes the next day. And it's exactly the amount of that extra money. You know, it's like the Spirit knows exactly what we have need of, what we need. The Spirit of God prays with perfect knowledge of our hearts, our thoughts, and our nature. But the Spirit also prays in just the right way. You have people that have all these different methods of praying. I remember this one person, you know, we were talking how Brian and I like to pray together every day, and, and we like to pray when we're walking. And this guy goes, oh, but do you ever pray with your eyes closed while you're running on the beach? It's like, no. <laughs> you know, like for me, I'd probably end up in the ocean <laughs> or in a lifeguard tower going, whoa. I, I, I don't do that or I'd bump into somebody, you know, like an octopus. I don't know. There, I don't. You don't, I'm like, uh, yeah, I felt really bad. Like, um, no. He goes, well, you pray through the temple, right? You start in the outward court with confession. And I'm like, no. I don't have a methodology. I just talk to God. I just converse. 
I just, he's my best friend. He's been with me since I was a kid. He stuck it out with me. And I just talked to him. And, you know, I don't have a methodology. But I don't need one. Because the Spirit knows exactly how to pray. He knows the right way to pray. You know, maybe he starts in the outer court confessing my sins for me. I don't know. But he gets me through. He opens wide the throne room of God, and I just walk in with boldness because the Spirit makes intercession. He prays just the right way, as I should pray. And he prays just the right things in accordance with God's will. He knows what God's best is for me, and he prays that way. But also, I love this. Do you realize that the Spirit prays passionately? We pray anemically, okay? Sometimes we pray like, okay, since nothing else worked, hi, God, help me. You know, since you're letting those people still get by with that. <laughs> All right, God. You know, we, we have these like prayers that are so anemic. I remember one time this person said, well, I guess we'll have to pray. You know, seriously, like everything else has failed, so let's pray. And that's how we use it. And our prayers can be so anemic because we don't have, we don't really believe sometimes when we're praying. Do we? Seriously, come on. Are you honest? We don't believe it when we pray. We're kind of just doing the Hail Mary. We're throwing the football up in the air and hoping somebody catches it because it's our last ditch effort to try to get a field goal or, I'm sorry, a touchdown. It's our last you know, it's so funny because we're in Ireland and my son Char's preaching to all these Irish people. And he says, you know, it's like when we throw a Hail Mary. Those people, they're ex-Catholics. They're like, Hail Mary, what? I didn't know we threw a rosary. What? What is he talking about, you know? And I was dying because I knew it was not, you know, crossing over the Atlantic. But, you know, sometimes that's what our prayers are. But Spirit prays with passion. Why does he pray with passion? He prays with passion because he sees God in his glory. Because he knows what we have need of. And so he's doing it with groanings and that, that can't even be uttered. That's passion. You know, maybe once or twice in your life you've really prayed with passion, right? Like, and you're giving it everything you have. And that's how the Holy Spirit always prays for us. That's how he always intercedes. Even when we don't have the passion, the Holy Spirit prays passionately for us. Because the Spirit is interceding for us in prayer, we have a guaranteed victory in our prayers. They will be answered in the best possible way. They will be answered for our greatest good and the greatest good of the situation and according to the plan and will of God. We have victory in all things. Romans 8, 28. Do we know this verse or do we know this verse? But it also goes all the way to verse 30. This is where Paul is covering all his bases, just in case he left out any specific area. He wants you to know that victory, no matter what you're going through, is assured. God will weave it together into the tapestry of his great plans. I wonder if we get to heaven, if we'll see a tapestry of our lives. Like, Cheryl, this is your tapestry. And you'll go, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so gorgeous. Oh, look, he even used that thread. Victory is absolutely assured to the one who loves God and is walking in God's purposes. There will be no mistakes. You can be assured that whatever touches you, God means for victory to weave into this tapestry for beauty. Notice, though, that it says works together. It's not separately. There are threads in the tapestry of our life that you take them out and they have no meaning. They have no purpose. They are ugly all by themselves. They make no sense. Things that are isolated. And, and let me say this. 
we tend to isolate these things in our life, our hurts, our suffering. We put them in a category by themselves, and we will not let God weave them into the tapestry of our life. And we keep looking at them, that thing, that thing. And God says, let me weave it in. No, that thing, that thing. That should never been allowed to happen to me. That thing, it was their fault. They did this to me. And we leave it without purpose, without glory, outside the tapestry. And the tapestry will never be complete, will never be as beautiful as it's meant to be if we leave it isolated outside. There are things that are ugly that happen to us. But if we let God take that ugly thing, he will weave it in and make it part of a beautiful tapestry of our lives. It has to work together. It has to come into all the other victories of our life. It has to be woven with the woof and the warp of everything that's happened. The date of our birth or, you know, your first month in kindergarten. It all has to be woven together. All things work together. If you isolate the pain in your life, there can be no purpose. It's like a th string of thread all alone. But when it is placed within the warp and woof of other threads, it has purpose, color, design, and beauty. God has a great plan that he is working together. And here's his plan. He foreknew you. This is how it starts. He foreknew you. He already knew you and what you would choose. In Psalm 139, verses 15 through 16, the psalmist says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God foreknew. He saw you before you were ever put together and began to write the book. Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God already knew the end from the beginning. He's the author of the book. He knows how the book begins and how the book ends. He wrote the book. He sees it all. He knows. And according to that foreknowledge, God predestined, or he came up with a plan for your life. And this plan is God's way of conforming you into the image of Jesus. In other words, God came up with a grand strategy to make you like Jesus. Jesus is the prototype of what God is going to do in your life. He's called the firstborn of all creation or the prototype for what everyone is meant to be. If you've ever wondered, you know, what am I going to be like after I die and Jesus does all this? I go straight to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to be eating honeycomb and broiled fish. I'm going to have a body, but I'm going to appear and disappear at will. He's the prototype. He is what we will be like. As John said, we don't know what we're going to be like, but this we know, that we will be like him. For we will see him as he absolutely is. And in that moment, we will be just like Jesus. And right now, God is conforming us into that image. God wants to make us like Jesus in love, in power, in joy, in obedience, in faith, in prayer, in kindness, in blessing in resurrection of our life. And we're told that having already known us and come up with this grand strategy for our lives, God has called us. Once God's plan was in order, God called us into this plan. We got our royal invitation. God began to call our name. He wrote it out. He delivered that invitation to us. And the call of God came when you gave yourself over to God. When you said, Lord, take my life. And then we're told that those he called, so he foreknew, he came up with this grand strategy, and then he called us. And those he called, he justified. In other words, he qualified us to be the recipients 
of this glory. He qualified, he met the qualifications for us. Have you ever read the want ads? You know, like, I don't know why you're looking for a job. You know, and maybe you really don't need a job, but you're thinking, what am I qualified for if I went back to work? And you look at the one ads and you're like, oh, I don't qualify for that. I don't qualify for that. I don't qualify for that. Years ago, um, it was the show Candid Camera. And they brought these people in and they had them take those career tests. And then they brought them in the room and told them what they were qualified for. And they gave them obscure occupations. Like this, this man comes in and he's, you know, he's got a master's degree. And they said, we've looked over everything. And according to your test, you're qualified to be a shepherd of sheep. And then they go, oh, I, I've got to go out of the office a minute. And then it's, you know, candid camera. And it's like, the guy's going, shepherd, sheep, shepherd, sheep. I mean, it was really obscure. You know, like, you know, another guy, like, you, uh, we've checked it out. And, and you would be really good at herding cows. Seriously? Yeah, like the best. Like, so good. But you know, there's all these things we're unqualified for. We've never done that. I've never been righteous for 24 hours straight. I've, I've never prayed with the enthusiasm that I, I need to, with the fervency. I, I've never ever met the qualifications. But all of the requirements to be blessed by God were met by Jesus Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians Chapter one, all the promises of God are in Christ Jesus. He met all the requirements for us. God didn't waive the requirements. He didn't forget the requirements. He didn't say there are no requirements. No, he said Jesus met the requirements. And if you are in Christ, you're qualified because Jesus is qualified. So whom he called he justified, he qualified, he met the requirements. And then the justified, he glorified. What is that, that glory that we were talking about? God took of his substance. He took what belonged to Jesus Christ and he gave it to us. So all that belongs to Christ, all that is his, the love, we get it. The joy, we get it. The reward, we get it. The victory, we get it. All that belongs to Christ by right, that he earns, that he's won, is now ours, whom he justified, he glorified. God put value on our lives, and he's ordained us for eternal glory. God has invested in all those from whom he has removed the condemnation. God has made an eternal investment in you. You have victory in all things because God has invested in you from start to finish. God has a great plan, a beautiful tapestry that he is weaving and God's plans cannot fail. God finishes everything he initiates. Philippians 1.6. I'm confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. I have a quilt in my closet that I made before my daughter, Kristen, my oldest. Now, I've made a quilt for every one of my children. This is her quilt top. I started it when she, before she even met Michael. Then she met Michael. Then she married Michael. And it's still a quilt top, undone, unbirthed, no batting, no backing. It's in my closet, mocking me. You don't finish your projects. It's only been 17 years. And I said to Kristen the other day, do you still want that quilt? She's like, yes, you still have that? Finish it. Darn. But God finishes his work. God finished creation and rested on the seventh day. Why? Because it was completed. And on the cross, when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. God finished the work of redemption. You can't add anything to it. He did it all. It is finished. Even as God has finished creation, finished the work of redemption, he will finish his work in you. He will finish it. 
He will make a beautiful tapestry out of your life. Finally, we have victory in life and death. Thank you for sticking with me. 31 through 39, we have assured victory in life because God is on our side. Verse 31, God wants your good, your best. God wants better things for you than you want for yourself. You know, we tend to settle for the lesser thing. We take door number one, but God won't. He won't settle for the first thing that comes around. God waits for the very best offer. I remember being in, in high school and even college, and you know there were these boys, and I wanted a boyfriend so bad. I'll be honest with you. I read Greg Laurie's book, Christian Dating, and I wanted one, just one Christian date. I wanted a really good Christian date. Tur. I wanted. I just wanted one. I, I you know, and so. I remember, it's so funny because my roommate from college, she said to me, Cheryl, remember when we were in college and we dated all those ugly guys? I'm like, yes. And she goes, and we were like begging them to date us? Yes, okay, I remember. There's no condemnation. But I remember even like, you know, when I would be dating someone, the longest I dated anyone but Brian was two weeks. And during that two weeks, in fact, when, he, when I went to three weeks with Brian, my dad calls me and goes, you want to tell me about this young man? I think it's getting serious. I'm like, why? He goes, three weeks. I'm like, okay, dad. But it's like I could feel the Holy Spirit saying, Cheryl, don't settle for second best. Don't settle for second best. I have the very best for you. And you know, I have to say, Brian Broderson is the very best for me. I mean, seriously. No one lasted over two weeks and he's lasted 35 years. I mean, that's pretty good. It's because it's like, he's not, let me just say this, he's not right for you. Okay? If you're a single girl, look someplace else. He's right for me. He is exactly what God wants for me. It, he's just so perfect for me. I, you know, one day it dawned on me, oh, you're God's first best. I think it was 30 years of marriage. Honey, and he looked at me like, I would hope so. But I'm a slow learner. But you know, we want to settle for the first thing. Well, this will work. I'll just take this. But God wants to give us the very, very best. God is for us. There is no one stronger than God. He has taken up our cause. God is indefeatable or undefeatable. I'm not sure if it's in or un, but he's both. The ones against us are not as strong as God. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. First John 4, 4. And how do we have proof that God is for us? Verse 32. Jesus is the constant living proof that God is for us. God knew exactly what we needed. We needed a savior who could save us from our sins. We needed a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sins. We needed an advocate that would understand us and intercede for us. And God provided in Jesus Christ exactly what we need. Yesu, the object of man's desire. He is everything that we truly crave and need. Jesus always pleased the Father in all he did and said. And God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now Jesus lives in us, and the Father looks on us and says, that's my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Because the one that pleases him lives in us. Since God gave us his dearest son, everything else we need is small change. He's already done the most costly thing for us. And now everything else he will give us through and because of Christ Jesus. God, and I love this, verse 33 through 34, God, because of Christ, will not accept any charges against us. Everything is thrown out of court. Every charge against us is thrown out of court. You know, let me just say this. There are some people who call themselves Christians. And you know what they are? They're critics. They're condemners. 
and their disqualifiers. Anyone who allows you to feel condemned or disqualified or criticizes you does not know the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We have not been called to criticize each other. We have not been called to condemn each other. We have not been called to disqualify each other. We have been called. We have been called to be gracious to each other, to encourage each other in Christ Jesus, to comfort each other, to draw each other in, to call each other, to comfort each other. That is what we have been called to. If Jesus is not throwing stones at us, why are we throwing stones at each other? If Jesus has cleared us, if God has cleared us through Christ and qualified us, why are we disqualifying each others? Have we become greater than God who qualifies us? That's why James says, if you're beginning to criticize and condemn someone else, I want you to know God is standing at the door and he ain't happy. We are to be calling, qualifying, comforting, and blessing one another. Jesus is not condemning us. He is the one who died for us, rose for us to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and now is at the right hand of God interceding for us. It's another thing we're supposed to be doing for each other. We're supposed to be praying for one another, not criticizing, not condemning, not disqualifying, but praying for each other. Why do we get excited like, they did something wrong, they did something wrong. You know why? Because we do wrong all the time. So look at their wrong, look at their wrong. Don't look at my wrong, look at their wrong. Why do we do that? Oh, God wants to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Christ do? He qualifies, he justifies, he calls, he comforts, he loves, he lavishes grace, he sacrifices, he intercedes. And that's what we're being conformed into, the image of Jesus We have assured victory because now, right now, there is nothing separating us from God's love. At one point, condemnation separated us from God's love. It stood in the way. Dear sister, do not stand in the way of God loving any other believer. Never stand in the way of that. Never try to disqualify any believer from God's love because it is the love of God that will transform. It is the love of God that will change. Condemnation stood in the way, but a righteous God who could could not look at sinful man, his gaze was too pure and could destroy us. But now Christ has removed that condemnation and has dealt with it. So there is nothing left that can separate us from God's love. Nothing, nothing left. Satan wants you to think that these things are signs that God is against you. He wants you to think that suffering is a sign that God is against you. He wants you to think that the fact that you can't see it is a sign that God is against you because you're not holding because you can't see it. He wants you to think that God is against you. He wants you to think that God is neglectful or unmindful or uncaring or upset with you. But God wants you to know that in all these things of life, you have absolute assurance of his love. No matter what you're going through, you can be assured God loves you and he will bring you to victory. You have the absolute assurance of God's love in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in peril, in sword. These have no power over the believer. You are still enveloped in God's love. The reality is that believers are persecuted. They are. In fact, it's said that uh, persecution is greater in the 21st century, the century we live in, than it has ever been. As Paul quoted, for your sake, we are killed all the day long and counted as sheep for the slaughter. But even in the worst persecution, we are still victors. I think of the martyrs, John and Betty Stan, 
who were beheaded in China for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they were beheaded, these non-believers looking on and watching John and Betty Stan bravely give their lives for Jesus Christ, they stepped forward and said, we want to be a Christian like them. We receive Jesus. Cut off our heads right now. They, they said that the estimate was 20 to 25 people that came forward and gave their lives to the Lord because of the martyrdom of John and Betty Stam. I think of those brave Egyptian Christians that we watched beheaded by ISIS. Did you know that ISIS was in black and totally covered? Those cowards, they didn't want you to know who they really were or what they really looked like. But you notice how we saw the Egyptians, we knew who they were. And they were wearing orange. They were reminding us of the blood of Jesus Christ, that it had already paid, and they're in glory. They're underneath the very throne of God, just waiting for the redemption of the sons of men. And in heaven, they are heroes, and they have received a hero's reward. They are glorified. God is with us in suffering, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4.14, that the spirit of glory and God rest upon you when you suffer for Christ. NKJV says this, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is it to be more than a conqueror? What is it to be more than a victor? What is it to have more than just victory? It's to collect the spoils of war. We haven't just won the battle. We've won the prize. We've won the war. NLT puts it this way. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. We have eternal victory. Verses 38 through 39, Paul stated that he was persuaded. He was absolutely certain he would give his life for the fact that death cannot separate us from God's love that nothing in life can separate us from God, that angels, these supernatural beings, cannot separate us from God's love, that no government, no ruler can ever separate us from God's love, that no power found in the universe, no force of nature, no force of man, no army can ever separate us from the love of God, that nothing which has happened to us in the past can separate us from God's love, that nothing in the future can separate us from God's love, that there is no distance that can separate us from God's love, that no created thing will ever be able to separate us from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus lives, we are assured of victory in life and death. God's love for Jesus is inescapable, undeniable, indescribable, constant, enduring, all-encompassing, all and it is in us because of Jesus. What is that thing in your life that you think can, will, or has separated you from the love of God? What is that trifling? What is that thing that Satan keeps holding over you and says, oh, but this, that wasn't in the list? I want you to know that it was in that list and it cannot separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate, not your failures, not your sins of the past. That condemnation has been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ and now there is nothing, nothing that can keep God from loving you. You are irresistible to the love of God absolutely irresistible. Are you living in victory? Are you living with God as the God of your distress? Is that all he is, your fallback? When I get into trouble, I start coming to church. I start doing even my lesson. Are you hiding in life? Are you living under condemnation? Is God the God of your victories? 
Is he weaving a tapestry of your life? Are you letting him have everything that has ever happened to you from beginning and end and saying, yes, in Christ, it has purpose and meaning and beauty. Take it, take it all, Lord, and put it in your tapestry. Weave it all together for my good and for beauty and for purpose. God desires that you come into all that he has opened up to you through Christ. He doesn't want you defeated in suffering, defeated in expectation, defeated in prayer, defeated in just about everything, or defeated in life or death. He wants you victorious in suffering, victorious in expectation, victorious in prayer, victorious in all things, victorious in life and death. He is the God of all things. He is over all things. He is the God of all victory. Now praise be unto Christ Jesus who leads us in triumph, who always leads us in triumph. Let's pray. Lord, I pray. I pray for us. Oh Lord, these are such mighty truths, but they're truths. It's so real. It's so true. Lord, whatever is holding back, Lord, these, your precious daughters, from receiving your love, I pray that that obstacle would be blown to bits and shredded. Right now, as every eye is closed, I want you to be really honest. And it, if you're saying, Cheryl, that's so hard for me to believe. I want to believe it. Help my unbelief. If that's you, will you raise your hand? We, oh, I knew it. Dear sister, oh, dear sister, receive the love of Jesus Christ. Receive the love of Jesus Christ. If you're living in defeat, if you've got an isolated thing in your, in, in your life and you haven't allowed God to weave it into the tapestry, if you're still embittered and angry over something that has happened in your past and you can't get over it, will you raise your hand? All right, all right. Dear sister, right now I'm asking you to commit that thing to God to weave into the tapestry. Will you give it to God that he can bring purpose to it? Will you weave it right now? Lord Jesus, these are your precious daughters. These are the ones that cannot be separated from your love. These are the ones that you wanna lead in victory after victory after victory. Lord, you don't want anything isolated or outside that tapestry of grace that you are weaving, that tapestry of victory. Lord, I think about how the tapestries always um, always um, were showing scenes of victory. And they were hung in palaces to, to remind those in the palace of the victories that had been won in the past. Lord, will you take these things and will you weave it into the tapestry? Lord, will you give every woman here right now the assurance of your love, of your grace? Lord, for those who have specialized in criticism and condemnation and disqualifying, will you remove um, those curses from them. They might think they're gifts, but Lord, will you remove them? Will you remove them? And will you give them the gift of calling others to grace? Will you give them the gift of commending others to the grace of Jesus Christ? Will you give them the gift of comforting others? Lord, will you work in us that we as a body of believers, we as a community, will walk in the victory that you have already won. We ask this according to the grace and the power of the victory of Christ Jesus that he has already won for us on the cross. We ask you to do this in the greatest name that can possibly be named, the name above every other name that is named, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.